All your favorite CBC podcasts are now available on YouTube. The best in award-winning true crime investigations, hilarious comedies, vibrant pop culture conversations, and even more audio series are all available on CBC Podcast's YouTube channel. You'll also find exclusive video first episodes, YouTube shorts, and behind-the-scenes content from our hosts and producers that you can't find anywhere else. So if YouTube is your go-to source for podcasts, just search CBC Podcasts and hit subscribe, and you'll never miss the latest update. This is a CBC Podcast. If you're really lucky, like really, really lucky, you get to have the kind of love Richard E. Grant shared with his wife, Joan Washington. They met in the early 80s. He was a struggling actor in London. She was a dialect coach to the stars. And over the course of their marriage, Richard got successful, he got famous, and Joan managed to do this difficult thing, which is believe in him unconditionally and also keep him totally grounded. After she died a couple years ago, Richard wrote a memoir. It's beautiful, and he will tell you some moving stories about their life together. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So when Richard E. Grant was 10 years old, he cracked open a diary and started to write down his life. And he's never stopped. Now, his archives cover everything, including his acting career, like one of his first big films that he starred in with Nail and I, Total Cult Classic, or this one. I loved your wacky TV bit. <laughs> Thanks, I loved yours too. Thing that I do regularly. <laughs> That's marvelously funny. <laughs> you have a lot of verve. <laughs> All the way to Gosford Park, or the role that got him an Oscar nomination in the movie Can You Ever Forgive Me? I've just come from having my teeth bleached. How do they look? Why would you do that? Oh, teeth are a dead giveaway. Okay. You might buy you a drink? Craigie? Yeah. Top her up. <laughs> so much personality. Uh, Richard E. Grant's diary also covers this incredible love story with his wife, Joan Washington. In the business, she was really well-known and well-respected as a dialect coach. She died two years ago after being diagnosed with lung cancer, and Richard took all of these diary entries that he'd written about their life together and about her death and turned them into a memoir called A Pocket Full of Happiness. He joined me to talk about Joan and to talk about his career. Here's our conversation. Welcome to Q. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. And I'm sorry for your loss, I'll say, uh, off the top. For anybody who has not met Joan, which is most of us listening, what's the first thing that you like to tell people about her? She was Aberdonian Scottish and five foot three. So she took no prisoners. She treated everybody from prince to pauper in exactly the same way. She was completely the opposite of me in that she was incapable of being starstruck by anybody, which was what made her such a great teacher of very, very famous actors to do accents. And her honesty and loyalty were bar none, and her moral compass unwavering. So when she died on the 2nd of September 2021, I felt like my compass had really been smashed. It took me the last 20 months to try and reassemble that, um, but I can constantly hear her voice uh, advising what I should and shouldn't be doing, which is the great legacy of you know, a four decades long partnership. This memoir that you've written is, is so beautiful. And it's called A Pocket Full of Happiness, which is a direct quote from Joan, from her voice. Could you share the significance of that phrase with us? Four days before she died, and she'd been 
terminally ill for eight months. She said to my daughter and I, I know that you're going to be sad, but I challenge you both to try and find a pocket full of happiness in each day. And it's not about winning the lottery or you know getting a Nobel Prize, just in something very, very simple. At the time, I thought it sounded like something from a Hallmark card, but it has proved to be a very wise mantra of how to navigate the abyss of grief. It's a tremendous instruction, and I think you have to be a very strong and secure person to give that directive to somebody that you love. You know what I mean? Yes. She also did this this funny thing um, a few weeks before she died. She went through, I didn't realize it at the time, she went through the 25 either widowed, divorced, or single women you know, amongst our friends, and she basically detonated every single one of them with a little verbal jab. So she said, well, of course, you know, her voice would drive you nuts and, you know. Oh, you mean like, as in like, if you were thinking of shacking up with any of these people after I pass, here's why you shouldn't? Yeah, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't realize at the time that that's exactly what she was doing. So she was a lioness, you know, laying, <laughs> laying claim to her territory. <laughs> <laughs> On the one hand, say, yes, go forth and, you know, try and find a pocket full of happenings each day. But if you do it with any of these 25, <laughs> you will be cursed. <laughs> Just not with these ladies. That is so funny. I love, yeah. I mean, I could see why you love her. I like, I love, <laughs> that's tremendous. So, I mean, I want to talk about some of, some of her work, which is amazing, which you, you pay tribute to in this book and you hinted to just a moment ago. I mean, Joan was prolific behind the scenes in the movie business. Can you tell us a little bit about the the dialect coach work that she did and some of the actors she helped? I mean, she worked with absolutely everybody from Robert Redford, Meryl Streep, Barbara Streisand, up, down and sideways. There's, there's almost very few people on the A-list that haven't come to her for help at some time. So she was a trained phonetician and had a brilliant ear and she could do 380 British dialects and two dozen American ones and then a whole bundle of European accents. So she was very, very specific. And unlike some vocal coaches that I've encountered where people say, you know, think of your grandmother's, you know, negligee wafting through the the breezes of the Himalayas as you lay on the floor and spread your sphincter as widely possible, you know, all this kind of guff that goes on. She was very practical and very specific and made you believe that you really could do an accent or a dialect. And I think that's what people really responded to. She was just a naturally gifted teacher, a great person to be married to if you're an actor. Not that I've had to do many accents and things. Well, yeah, so. but she helped you in the beginning of your career. I mean, she, she was did, your yeah. vocal coach before she was your wife. So take me take yeah. me back to 1982 when, when the two of you met. You're a struggling actor. You're waiting tables in, in London and, and you meet this dialect coach. I had gone to the Actors Center, which is where actors who had no money, because I was waiting tables at that point, could get a regional course of different British dialects. And the agent that I had said that because you're over six foot, you have black hair and blue eyes, there are all these dramas being made about the troubles in Northern Ireland in Belfast. Can you do a Belfast accent? And I said, debatable. <laughs> and he said, right, you have to go and get classes. So I found out through a mutual friend there was a woman um, called Joan Washington doing it at the Z Actors Center. So I signed up. And at the end of it, I said, could you possibly 
teach me privately. And she said, why? And I said, because I have a Swaziland colonial accent from where I grew up. And people say that I speak like somebody from England in the 1950s. And I want to sound like somebody in London in the 1980s. So she said, right, I'll give you a couple of classes. So I thought I'd never see her again. And then in January 1983, she was coaching a play at the Royal Shakespeare Company, which required a Siswati speaker, um, which is a click language, which I speak um, from where I grew up. So she made a deal. She said, if you put all of this dialogue on tape for me, um, I'll cook you dinner in exchange. So I went round, put all the dialogue on tape, and I didn't go home that night. So essentially, a conversation that began in bed with her in 19, January 1983 ended in bed, holding her hand, still talking to her on the 2nd of September 2021, 38 years later. Oof. When you describe yourself in, in those early days when you met her, I mean, obviously, you were in a radically different position than you are now. And, and the course of your relationship, you know, follows the, the course of your career. And one, one of the things that I found really touching um, in the book is you write about how her faith never wavered, uh, her faith in you never wavered, despite you being unemployed for very long stretches of time. Do you think that she saw something in you that she really believed in, in, in those early days? Yeah, she told me that when she was already so, she was 10 years older than me, so established as a top dialogue accent coach at the, the Royal Shakespeare Company, the Royal Court Theatre, National Theatre, she coached on movies. And I was sort of, you know, a younger actor trying to make a go of it, you know, waitering, waiting tables and then getting small jobs here and there. But she never wavered. And when, when I finally got the, a movie of, um, with Naomi in 1986 and then had enough money to ask if she would marry me, some of her friends said to her, you should never marry this guy because, you know, he's probably a gold digger. He probably has no prospects or whatever. And she only told me this subsequently, but she'd never spoken to those people ever again. So she had faith or believed that I, you know, would succeed at something. Her faith really galvanized and sustained me through incredible you know, months of unemployment or doubt. So I'm I'm lifelong indebted to her for that. You brought up with Nail and I your your big breakout film, 1986. I love that film so much. Can I play you a, a clip from it that I want to talk Thank about? Thank you. You're welcome. Here we go. We've got to get some boobs. It's the only solution to this intense cold. We can't go on like this. I'm a trained actor reduced to the stakes of a bum. I mean, look at us. Nothing that reasonable members of society demand as their rights. No fridges, no televisions, no phones. Much more of this I'm going to apply for Meals on Wheels. <laughs> Richard E. Grant uh, from, from your breakout film, With Nail and I, directed by Bruce Robinson. Um, you write in your book about playing this alcoholic and that you were insecure about that because you in true life cannot digest alcohol. Um, mm -hmm. If you don't mind indulging me, how did you figure out how to play this character, an alcoholic? Well, my father was a chronic alcoholic. And so I had him as a role model on a daily basis when I was growing up. And I thought that it must be psychosomatic when I found that I couldn't keep alcohol down for more than nine minutes and went to a doctor when I was a teenager, did a blood test. And he said, you have no enzyme, you can never drink, it's completely toxic to you. So the director in his sadism, on the penultimate day of rehearsals before we started shooting on location said you have to have a physical memory of what it's like to be absolutely leglessly drunk so he gave me a bottle of champagne said go home we'll pick you up in the morning bring you to the studio and you get that down your 
gullet. So I did, you know, vomiting all the way through the night, but finally got through the whole bottle. And um, I was very, very drunk when I arrived at the rehearsals the following morning and got about halfway through the script, which I knew by heart by that at that point, and then saw these windows into the um, studio garden. So I ran out of those and a Persian carpet of vomit came out of my mouth. And then I woke up 24 hours later at home, having no idea how I'd got there. And Joan did say to me, you know, why did you just try acting, you silly one? So. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, she's joking, but like that, that wouldn't fly today. I don't think a director these days could say to an actor who's like, can't process alcohol, go home, get wasted. We'll, we'll deal with the physical consequences later. You know what, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'd like to sue in retrospect. We're, st- we're still great friends. <laughs> I bet. I mean, that rule changed your life, as you've as you've written about, and and yeah, as we and know. Daniel Day Lewis turned it down. Otherwise, I would not be sitting here speaking to you today. I know that. You know, sliding doors moment. He he was offered that at the same time as unbearable lightness of being, and um, mercifully for me, he 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 did the other part. Yeah, the sliding doors, sliding doors moments. Yeah, absolutely. When you talk about. Um, I guess using doing some doing some method things or drawing from your own life when you're playing roles. I'm wondering about the the part of this book where you write about some of the hardship that you and Joan were struggling with in trying to conceive a child and going through multiple miscarriages. And this is sort of just as your career is taking off and you're getting parts like how to get ahead in advertising in this. I'm wondering if you are the kind of artist who can compartmentalize that kind of thing or whether what you were going through when you were trying to start a family together was sort of bleeding into your work or the way you approached it? I think as much as you try to compartmentalize things, um, inevitably something is going to bleed into one one into the other. But I'm certainly not a method actor by a long chalk. Um, But I had to be so crazed during the shooting of How to Get Ahead in Advertising, playing a man who grew a talking boil on his neck. Oh, my God. Nurse, it's the boil shaking it. It's the boil! Ah! Ah! Um, that Joan did say to me after the nine weeks of shooting we finished, she said, well, you know, mercifully that is over because you have been absolutely off the chart manic <laughs> um, for the last two months. But... You know, it's very, I think that when you're subjectively in, in the middle of that, you can't really see that or monitor your own behavior, or I certainly can't. You have to have so much trust in a relationship to be your full self like that, you know, when you come home at the end of the day, like what you what you just described is like relationship goals. You know, you, you come home, you're, you're in what she describes as a total manic state, and she's loving you through it and sort of just like, yeah, okay, well, that's how you are right now. I don't know that loving is what went through. Okay, fair enough. Tolerance and light hatred would be more apt. <laughs> light hatred, the kind that can fuel, you know, a lifetime, a, a lifelong oh, relationship. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Any, any couple who said, oh, no, we've never had an argument or a crossword, I think, yeah, lion. I don't believe it. That's Maybe you have one of those. Me? No. no. That's the most boring thing I've ever heard of, and I don't think anybody truly has it. <laughs> you know, and, I mean, eventually there's this beautiful part of your story together where you have your miracle baby, your daughter uh, mm-hmm. Olivia, who you write about beautifully in this book, born in 1989. Um, and as she's growing up, you're you're doing huge movies like L.A. Story and Martin Scorsese's The Age of Innocence. 
But you write in this book that nothing quite impressed Olivia like this role. Look at this. Front page news again. What do you think you were doing going off like that? We were just having fun. You know, fun, like ha, 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 ha. Look, Clifford, we're old enough to take responsibility for our own lives. Do you know what I mean? You don't have a life. You have a schedule. <laughs> Spice World, a movie, a classic. Spice World. Okay, yes. I I have to confess. I mean, I'm around the same the same age as Olivia, and okay. that you know that movie, Spice World, came out in 1997. You played the fictional manager of the Spice Girls in that film. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine if my dad was in the freaking Spice World movie. So, what was it like to bring your kid to set? Oh, it was amazing because it was in the, it was pre-internet, and I came home from picked her up from school, and she always ran to my my study and would put the answer machine on with a little blinking red light, and then listen to the messages while I was making her something to eat. And she came through, and she, her teeth were clattering, and she said, "Oh, you've been offered the Spice World manager in Spice World the movie. You have to do it. I don't care if you're offered a ten-year contract at Disney. You have to be in this movie so that all my friends can come meet them," which is exactly what came to pass. But there were more grandiose members of my profession, especially theater actors who were very, very snooty and looked down upon the fact of being in Spice World, the movie with people who they said, yeah, these are not proper actors and it's a you know candy floss load of rubbish. But yeah, the best thing of that was is that 20 years later, Adele, who was obsessed with the film, offered me tickets to her sold out concerts at, um, at a 20,000 seat of venue in in London, and Lena Dunham, who knew me from that movie, wrote four episodes for me to play a cocaine addict in Girls. So, you know, as far as I was concerned, win-win. And I've stayed stayed friends with all of the Spice Girls since then. Um, so, you know, I was recently at Jerry Halliwell's 50th birthday party. So, you what? know, win-win as far as I'm concerned. Wait, what, what was Jerry Halliwell's 50th birthday party like? Oh, it was extraordinary. She, it was... She's married a man who is in charge of Red Bull Formula One racing. And they had this enormous and very, very lavish party in the stables of their country estate. And it would all been decked out with chandeliers and velvet and you know, extraordinary guest lists. So I was seated next to Jerry. And on the other side of Jerry was Shirley Bassey, oh who in her mid-80s, you know, the singer of all those James Bond, Goldfinger, iconic anthems, sang live without a microphone, happy birthday to her. So it was it was a surreal and thrilling moment. That's you're you're the first person I've ever talked to who's been at a Spice Girls birthday party. That's oh, yeah. really something. Or a Spice Woman. But no, uh, to your point, though, about about uh, colleagues and like act, actor people and what they thought of the role. I also think about Alan Cumming, who is in that movie, who's oh, yeah. an amazingly respected stage actor. Right. Uh-huh. And and just in my humble opinion, like the amount of craft and excellence that it takes to pull off a funny part in a movie like that and be really good. Like you have to you have to almost be above and beyond it. I think it requires a, a special amount of skill to do something like that and to do it well. Do you know what I mean? You're laughing, but I'm serious. Oh, it just we it was riotously enjoyable to make because they're not trained actors. So they yeah. improvised around the script, they made stuff up and they were hilarious. And they were so endearing because Jerry was twenty five, pretending to be twenty, and the others the other four were were twenty. <laughs> They were so genuinely astonished at their global success that, 
it was it was just a riot to be around them. I loved them, and they were great with my daughter and all her friends. So I had the highest status at the school playground for about two terms as a result of being that movie. <laughs> I can't imagine anything better. I can't imagine. Um, and at the time, your star is rising too. I mean, you're doing incredible, incredible movies, amazing things. And I am thinking about what you said earlier in our conversation about when you didn't have enough money to propose to Joan and ask her to marry you Mm -hmm. um, and those friends who discouraged her from it. If we fast forward to, you know, the part of your career that we're talking about now, you're, you're quite a famous person. You're presumably making lots of money. What was it like in your marriage? What was it like for Joan when your career took off in the way that it did? I get the sense that she was quite a private person. You write about her being maybe uncomfortable, being a plus one at a big premiere, like for a movie like Gosford Park. Was that a yeah. difference that you had to navigate together as you got more famous? Yeah, I found that. And, and the most extreme of that syndrome happened the night before we were due to fly to Los Angeles for the Oscar ceremony. She said to me, Swell, she was called me Swell, she said, I am not going to go to the Oscars, forgive me. And I was absolutely furious. And and I said, why? She said, because I've been to the Golden Globes. I've been to the BAFTAs. I've been to all these other premieres. I'm five foot three. I haven't had two decades worth of plastic surgery. Every woman there will be in Jimmy Choo heels, towering above me. I'll be pushed out of the way. I'll be invisible. And it's extremely uncomfortable and humiliating to be in that situation. Go with our daughter. So it turned out that she, you know, she was always right, but at that moment, I couldn't see the wood for the trees, so I was furious. Anyway, she was right, and it was. she said, you enjoy all that, and you, you know, you're a gas bag, and you like meeting 100 people. She said, I'm the complete opposite. I'm not starstruck in the same way, so she enjoyed it vicariously, and it meant that I could go to all the parties with my daughter and not worry that my wife was being sidelined. <laughs> sure, sure, but it must have broken your heart a little bit. That's a hard thing to hear from somebody that you love, that they feel especially about their appearance, like self-conscious to be. Hardened my heart. Hardened <laughs> my heart. I was furious with her. And then when I was sort of frothing at having met Barbara Streisand, my lifelong idol, my daughter said to me at the governor's ball straight out of the Oscars, she said, this is exactly why mum isn't here. It's just as well that she isn't, because she would have probably taken a cricket bat to your skull for being frothing over another woman like the way you did. <laughs> You're listening to Q. I'm Talia Schlanger sitting in for Tom Power. That was the first part of my chat with actor Richard E. Grant. You're going to hear more about how Richard's life changed after he starred in the film Can You Ever Forgive Me and was nominated for an Oscar and how he dealt with the colossal loss of the love of his life. I'm Talia Schlanger sitting in for Tom Power. Q is back in a bit. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, Here, There and Everywhere. Listen to Season 2 of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When she died, my compass had really been smashed. It's taken me the last 20 months to try and reassemble that, but I can constantly hear a voice uh, advising what I should and shouldn't be doing, which is the great legacy of you know, a four decades long 
partnership. It's such a beautiful story. And it's a heart-wrenching story, too. Uh, You're listening to Q. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power, and we're in the middle of my conversation with Richard E. Grant, tremendous character actor. You might know him from Gosford Park, from Doctor Who, from uh, his Oscar-nominated role in Can You Ever Forgive Me? And he was talking there about the love of his life, Joan Washington. She was a famous Hollywood dialect coach. She worked with everyone from Barbara Streisand to Penelope Cruz, uh, and she loved Richard. They spent the better part of four decades together until she died a couple of years ago. So he wrote this memoir about their life together called A Pocket Full of Happiness. And one of the things that he explains in this book is that no matter who she was working with, Joan was not starstruck. Nothing moved her. No celebrity moved her. And that is very different from Richard's own feelings about celebrity. He he loves a celebrity encounter, as he is not afraid to say. And he was a little more than excited about being nominated for an Oscar for Can You Ever Forgive Me? In fact, he even posted this video to social media after he got the news. I'm absolutely overwhelmed. 36 years ago, I rented this bedsit here, which was one room in Notting Hill Gate, for 30 pounds a week, so at $50. And I cannot believe that 36 years later, I'm standing here as an almost 62 year old man having an Oscar nomination. <laughs> yes, very, very subtle and, um, you know, restrained response, as you've just exposed. <laughs> I mean, you put it, you put it out there first. Yep, I did. I did. Yeah, I, I, I am incapable of hiding you know um my joy or delight in in things so um you have to be authentic to yourself and of course you know it annoys some people because they think oh how can you possibly be that thrilled about something whereas you know i think there's a tendency to, uh, among some actors to be very blasé about it and act as though oh yeah well yeah it's unimportant or this happens every week not me yeah well- loose in the sweetie shop of fame i was so thrilled because i knew it would never happen before and it's never happened since why should you be afraid to to be joyful about something that's an in, incredible achievement? I don't because understand that. Because it's considered that. uncool. Oh. Because people think it's uncool. You okay. know, you've got to be nonchalant about it. And kind of like, oh, yeah, 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 blasé. Not no. me. No, no, <laughs> no. That wouldn't be genuine. Um, I think it's also, I mean, it's really interesting that what you said about Joan not being starstruck, like she wasn't starstruck by your co-stars, not starstruck by you. Where do you think that that came from in her? I think because her Calvinism, having been grown up in a very religious family in Scotland, there's an attitude of, of you know, prove yourself as a, as a person, irrespective of who you think you are. You know, prove yourself to be a good, honest, decent, trustworthy soul, and then I'll give you the time of day. And I think that that sensibility informed everything about her. And I suppose it's a kind of protect, protection as well, that it means that you don't suffer the same disappointment if you put somebody on a great big pedestal and then find out that, you know, their feet are made of clay. Hmm. So I think that's just a profound difference between us. It sounds like she was such a grounding force and and what you needed to, to do what you had to do. Yes, she was that exactly. I can only agree with you. Yeah, you said at the beginning that you felt like your compass has been shattered. Mm-hmm. How are you finding your way now? Well, 20 months since her death, I found that because her voice is so habitually present in my head and my heart, she has, you know, that compass has been invisibly reassembled. So I feel that, you know, she's she's guiding me, although she's 
physically no longer here. Mm. You had a, a lot of high-profile people show up for you after she passed away, and you write about mm -hmm. some of them in the book. Can you tell me a bit about your support network and in, in getting through? Well, I think because, you know, between the two of us over four decades, we we know so many actors who have then, in those decades, become very famous. And we also have known Prince Charles as he was then for three decades. So the support and kindness that we're shown by the majority of our friends, 99% of them, is something that, you know, is beyond all measure. Nigella Lawson, for instance, the, she's a television cookery presenter and writer. She sent homemade food round in a taxi to our house every Sunday afternoon at three o'clock sharp, which meant that we had food for two or three days. So I didn't have to go to the supermarket and have to cook so that I could look after Joan, you know, 24-7. Prince Charles asked me if he could come and say his goodbye to Joan four weeks before she died and brought around a bag of mangoes, which she knew were her favorite fruit, and highly scented roses from his estate in Highgrove. And he sat with her for half an hour, holding her hand. And his opening gambit was, it's been an absolute honor and pleasure to have known you, Joan. And you know, quick as a whip, she just said, I'm still here. So, you know, that's just how she was. Prince or pauper, she treated everybody exactly the same, which is why I think people responded and respected her because she was never going to varnish something. You know, if she thought that you could improve something or do better, she would tell you. And, you know, especially in show business where there is such a tendency for people to hyperinflate things, she said it like it was, but never in a way that was vitriolic or critical for critics' sake. It was always constructive criticism. So I think she really built her reputation on that. You know what I'm finding so interesting? Like when when you read those parts of the book, there are very, very famous people that you're talking about there, right? Like Prince mm -hmm. Charles, Nigella Lawson, these are very famous people. But it's not like a name droppy thing. It's just like, these are the friends in your life who are human beings who care about you and your wife and, and what's happening. And for me, in a way, that kind of humanizes people that we hear about yeah. in the public eye, like picturing now King, then Prince Charles showing up with a bag of mangoes, you know, to come and sit with somebody for half an hour, sort of just unlocks, like unlocks a, <laughs> I hate to say it this way, but like celebrities, they're people too, kind of a oh, kind yeah. of a world. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you find, you find the level of compassion and care that people give you is you know, immeasurably generous. Mm. And so I'm very, very grateful for that. And of course, there's the 1% of people who dropped away that would cross the road rather than come and talk to you in case you are, for whatever, that death is going to be catching or that you're going to fall apart in front of them or whatever. So, you know, there are some people that I will never speak to again and will never forgive for that. That's interesting. Is that what you think it is, that people are scared that your grief will impact them and that's why they drop off? I don't know. Um, but I've met so many people through social media or in the street or people have written to me and said, this is exactly my experience. So it's, it's obviously a very common human phenomenon. Mm. But, you know, a small percentage, but none of us who've been through this forget those people who dro dropped off the cliff face. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. That's for sure. Um, I want to go back, circle back around, I guess, to the, the title of the book, just as mm -hmm. we close out in this idea of of a pocket full of happiness and how you said that, you know, Joan, before she passed, asked you and your daughter to look for a pocket full of happiness every day. So for you now, I guess 20 months, like nearly two years on after her passing, mm -hmm. what constitutes a, a pocket full of happiness? Is there a recent, a recent one that you can, can share? 
literally f flying to New York yesterday and doing this event in the historic Strand Bookstore in Manhattan and having all these people who I've never met before show up and respond. And you think, well, you know, how are they going to respond? Because I know that, you know, it's been a bestseller in England and I've, I know from the shows that I've done there. But how will that translate to an American audience or a Canadian audience? And I suppose the common denominator is that, as Jones sagely said, every single one of us is going to die. You two, you and my daughter included. So she said, you know, it's my turn and I've had a good life. And I think that the being mindful of that, like, you know, the weather today is absolutely extraordinary here in New York. And um, I'm going to see a Broadway show tonight. So, yes, I'm on my own doing that. But... It is enormously pleasurable and pocketful of happiness means that I'm given license to enjoy that and not think, oh, well, if only Joan were here or I feel guilty because she's not with me eating crab cakes and, you know, eggs Benedict or all the things that we'd love to eat when we come to America. So I know what her response would be. And that's extremely um, gratifying. Mm. Thank you for, for sharing your stories about her and about your own career. Oh, thank you. Thanks for all your research and asking the questions. Thank you. I'm so grateful. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I've learned a lot from you about relationships and life and <laughs> career. So thank you. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. There you go. A, really a love story for the ages, I think. Um, that was the Oscar-nominated actor Richard E. Grant. His memoir is called A Pocket Full of Happiness, and it's out now. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom. Have a listen to this. That's a new one called Old Friends. It's by Scarborough, Ontario's Looney. It's been a minute since Looney put out new music. Her last full album came out a couple years ago. It's called Soft Thing. It was this collection of super intimate R&B soul songs, and it was on the long list for the Polaris Music Prize. That's the one that's based on artistic merit alone. Uh, Looney has been collaborating with some notable producers, including Akil Henry, who's worked with folks like John Legend and Tony Braxton. He's been nominated for a Grammy. So with her songs getting millions of streams, there's a lot of excitement when Looney a.k.a. Kira Huzar, drops new music. I caught up with her while she was working on some new music in a studio east of Toronto. The new song that we're talking about today has this classic R&B feel to it. I understand that it came together when you were doing some jamming with some of your collaborators. Can you can you set the scene for me? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I work really closely with Akil Henry. Like, we've made so many songs over the last few years, and... Um, so when I'm here, he's like the main person I work with. And when I was out in LA, I really just clicked with this other producer out there named Dan Farber. And we also added another Toronto producer, Aaron Paris. And for a week or so, holed up in Dan's apartment and just started making a bunch of songs. And um, for this song in particular, I think we like kind of hit a wall or something. So we kind of just started jamming, just like sort of live, like on the floor. Um and then, I don't know, just these words from this song I had written like six years ago just came to my mind. And I just started floating them sort of over top of what everyone was doing. And and we all just, we all just, I don't know, we just all got kind of tingly and we got excited. And the song got put together really, really quickly after that. 
that tingly feeling. Um, before we talk about yeah. the, the lyrics, you have to forgive me for name dropping, but like Dan Farber, who you just mentioned, has worked with Kanye West and, and Drake. I mean, you guys are a bunch of heavy musicians sitting around and, and getting the tinglys together. <laughs> yeah, it was a really magical moment. And they're all incredible. They all, they're all, it's interesting, like they're all so different and they bring, I don't know, just a really sort of unique perspective to any song. So having the three of them together that day was just, it was great. Mm. You said that these were sort of lyrics that you had floating in your head for a while, or this was an idea that was already in your mind. What were you thinking about when you were writing the lyrics for Old Friends? I think I wrote it literally like I made a voice note. I think I was on like the train, like in Scarborough, I was on the TTC. And I think I made a voice note. And it was like after a, I was going through like a breakup. And I think it was like maybe six months past the breakup. And I don't know, I just like ran into someone random that I knew from a long time ago and it transported me back. And I kind of was thinking about what it would be like if I ran into this person. And I don't know, it was sort of was just, it was the first time where I really was viewing this person that I dated, like as a person, like independent from me and just sort of starting to feel like there wasn't really much more malice there. It's just, I just, I don't know. I got really kind of caught up in what it's like, um, what, what relationships look like, you know, after they stop being romantic, if, if there's not a lot of pain there, like what it looks like when you're able to kind of move past it. And I think, yeah, the song kind of came from that place. Yeah, it's a very warm sounding song, but no, like not even a little bit of malice, not a little bit of a, a passive aggressive kind of a... Yeah, thing. there's a little, like even when I like listen to like the verses, like, yeah, I think there is like a touch of passive aggressiveness. And this person <laughs> I wrote it about was listening and he was like, okay, I like the little passive aggressive touches, but the song's very sweet. So I feel like he kind of caught on to that too. So yeah, there's something like... A little bit of malice, especially six six months after a breakup. But it yeah. was more like overall. I don't think I've ever had that before where, you know, like a relationship's over and I don't just absolutely hate the other person. So this was the first time. So maybe that was inspiring to me where I was like, oh, we're just people. We didn't make it work. And we both have our feelings about one another, but we're just people. It's okay. You know, I never really felt like that before. It's a step. It's a step. When you picture somebody listening to the song, where do you see them listening? I weirdly this is this is very biased because it's like where I wrote it but I picture people listening like on a crowded train like just out in the world like where really you could run into anybody like you could run into someone that you have like a past with that's just where I picture people listening probably partly because like that's where I wrote some of it it would be very useful to be listening to the song if you ran into somebody that you used to date you could just say here have a listen (laughs) have a listen to this old friend. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, it could put you in a, it could also just put you in maybe a more warm receiving state, you know? I don't know. Exactly. Well, before we hear the song, I have to ask you real quick, who's singing the high harmony uh, in it that we hear, that like really lovely high harmony? Oh, um, yeah. So there's a bunch of vocals of me that are pitched up and we did certain things during the day where it's like all of us kind of singing together in the room. But I think the highest harmony, the one you're talking about, his name is Dante Brown, and he's incredible. He's a young singer from Scarborough as well, and he's he's absolutely he's a, yeah he's I can't say enough good things about him. His voice is special. Well, will you throw to the song for us? Absolutely. Hey, this is Looney. You're listening to Old Friends on CBCQ. Why you 
pick up your phone Wondering, maybe, lately If you're still mad about something I say So long ago, but no, you don't forget Hey there, old friend How you been? Baby, we're changes in that song. That was a new one called Old Friends. It's by Scarborough, Ontario's Looney. And before that, you heard my conversation with Looney. And that's it for Q today. You hear people say this all the time. It's never too late to start something new, to pursue a dream. Okay, get this. DJ Ron Nelson is considered to be the godfather of hip-hop radio in Toronto. And now at the age of 60, he is releasing his first rap album. You'll hear his conversation with Tom Power, a look back at his journey as a pioneering hip-hop radio host, and why he's putting out his own rap album now. That's tomorrow on the show. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. I'll see you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.